I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. Do you understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. This is Play Me, your digital theater. We transform the hottest contemporary plays into bingeable audio dramas. I'm Laura Mullen. And I'm Chris Tolley. Welcome to Play Me and this special episode, an interview with Karen Hines, the playwright and performer behind the hit show Crawl Space. Karen is the author of seven award-winning plays and is a two-time finalist for the Governor General's Literary Award for her shows Poxy Plays and Drama Pilot Episode. She is also a Gemini nominee and Dora Award-winning performer and director. Laura had the opportunity to sit down with Karen and talk about her play Crawl Space, which was inspired by her own experiences of buying a home in Toronto's hot real estate market and losing it and her life savings 18 months later. Laura and Karen discussed the challenges of writing about personal experiences, what it's like to create and perform a solo show, and how she finally found her dream home. This is Laura's interview with Karen Hines. Can you start by telling me, what is Crawl Space about? Sure. Um, Crawl Space is based on a true story, my story of home ownership, my disastrous story of home ownership. Uh, I bought a house in 2006 in the city of Toronto. It was the smallest house in the city for sale. And um, it seemed to be the perfect dream kind of Barbie house. But within days of moving in, it began to fall apart uh, in little ways at first and then more noticeable ways. And then things went from bad to worse to worse to worse. And it became completely unlivable. And I uh, wanted to get out. I couldn't sell it. Um, and uh, it's the story of the, the nightmare, the, the real nightmare. But, you know, ultimately what I hope it is about is about not needing real estate. <laughs> and that when you go through the gauntlet like that, you can come out the other side and decide that you are free of real estate. I think what struck me is at the beginning of the play, you say that you bought the smallest house in Toronto and 18 months later, you lost the house Mm -hmm. and your life savings, Mm -hmm. essentially. And that is far from the dream of home ownership. Mm -hmm. I just want to ask you, because I think as a society, we are brought up to believe that owning a house is the pinnacle of of financial uh, success. And that's that's the goal. Mm -hmm. Um, And you sort of um, debunk that and um, show how owning a house can actually be financial ruin. Mm-hmm. Is that the message that you wanted? Or why did you want to share this this story that's so difficult? Well, I guess it's a bit of a warning. Um, so yeah, I wanted to share it partly for that reason. But more, I wanted to share it to offer catharsis to anybody who has, a, has had a similar experience, um, bought a house, lost a house, or had a, a nightmare of trying to save a house. Um I 
mostly, though, would say that I wanted to tell the story not to describe my financial ruin, but to describe it and then describe what is possible after financial ruin, that that um, that that friends were more important to me ultimately than real estate, that uh, that feeling at home somewhere, even if I didn't own that home, was far more important to me than real estate. Uh, I wound up leaving the city of Toronto after this event because I, it was untenable for me to stay here for a time and found home elsewhere, and home meant many other things than real estate. Because it's like, I think people love to say, oh, I bought a house, uh, you know, 10 years ago, and it's gone up X number of dollars. That's the the real estate story people tend to want to share. And yours is the opposite. I'm just wondering, um, what made you want to share such a hard story? Well, I was I was encouraged to write the story um, by my friend Bruce McCullough, who is one of the kids in the hall, for those who know the kids in the hall, um, comedic genius. When a comedic genius tells you that you should write your story down and that it could be a dark comedy, you listen. And he he he's kind of bugged me about it for a few years, and I just couldn't imagine it being funny. Um, but then another friend of mine, Shelley Youngblood, who was running a magazine at the time called Swerve, invited me to write the piece as a uh, you know as a. Uh, it's a, it's a piece, <laughs> it's a magazine piece. And so I didn't have the pressure of making it funny. And so I could get into the darkness and the, um, you know, the various philosophies that I uh, had to get into to save my soul. So like Taoist philosophy and, you know, things about non-attachment. Um, but then humor started to creep up in the piece. And I did begin to see the possibility of uh translating it as a stage play uh, once I found some of the comedy in it. But then I also really didn't want it to be a first world problem story. I didn't want it to be about, oh, woe's me. I I had real estate trouble. Um, and so I, I, I learned from writing that magazine piece that I could go into all kinds of territory, all kinds of psychological territory and, um, you know, the the psychology of living with the smell of a dead animal, for example, and what that's like and what that, how that goes beyond first world problems into a sort of very personal territory that a lot of people can relate to. And, um, and I, I, I just decided that I was going to, you know, I, I, I threw myself into the situation of creating a, a play when Jordan Tannehill and William Ellis, who were at that time running Video Fag, invited me to turn the piece into a, a solo show. And I, I took the challenge. And so I, it wasn't written when I agreed to do it. Um, I committed to the performances. And uh, we started writing grants before it was written. Um, and there's something about a deadline, too, that makes you uh, come up with the goods. And what I realized as I was trying to come up with the goods was that I was going to get around this first world woe is me problem uh, by naming myself an idiot. So by bursting that bubble and um, not being 
uh, not playing the victim. Um, certainly the, the play shows me as a victim of the system of the Toronto Real Estate Board regulations that are basically meaningless as far as I'm concerned, or you know, certainly they were in my case. Uh, but rather than those things being downers, I was able to turn them into um, very dark comedy, uh, but always with the notion of myself as an idiot at the core. It's funny that you refer to yourself as an idiot, because when I listen to it, I think one of the things that that just uh, grabs me so much is because when I listen to you go through the steps of it's a condo alternative, everything is done, you have a lawyer, you have insurance, I think, yes, I I see myself in you making the same choices and ending up in the same situation. What would you say to people that are wanting to get into the real estate market based on the experiences that you've had? Oh, I, I'm, I caution people. I, I tell them my story. Uh, I sometimes give them the book of Crawl Space, um, published by Coach House Books for anybody who wants it. Um, and I can tell you that people who came to see the show, younger people would often come up to me and tell me that they felt released of the need to buy real estate in Toronto. Older people would come up and I would say, not the majority, but you know, certainly a good portion of them had bought, had had their own problems. Everybody has a real estate story, whether it's a seeping wall or a leaking basement or a roof that falls in or a tree that falls on the house. Uh, everyone's got something and something that has turned their life upside down for a while. And um, so the there's catharsis for those people because whatever psychological impact that might have had on them and yeah you can say first world story but like if you're completely upended because a tree falls on your house and you still have to go to work and you start to lose your job and your marriage breaks up and you know these things happen to people this is not uncommon um catharsis is kind of a welcome relief and uh and certainly for the people who uh don't want to buy or, or are unsure of buying, it's a confirmation that they needn't. And also, I, I mean, you look at the math, and very often the math is not really in favor of people who, who buy, especially people who don't have huge money to put down on their down payment. Uh, and you say um, in your show, and you just said now how everybody has a real estate story, and I think you cite rodents and bed bugs and maybe roommates even. So whether you own a house or not, people have issues. I think also what's striking about that is that when when your enemy is your home, because mm-hmm. your home is, as you say in the show, is where you're supposed to feel safe. Mm-hmm. Um, how much of that played into your show about that sense of security? It's a huge part of the show. I began to feel unsafe in my house very soon after moving into it. It looked perfect. It was very charming and nicely designed, uh, and uh, it it began to feel unsafe. Not just because there were things wrong with it that might affect my health or well well being for certain, but um, that might affect my health. Um, uh, it felt unsafe because I realized that the people who had renovated it, who had flipped it had done so with no warmth in their heart for the person who was going to take the house over. Uh, They had done it as 
as cheaply as they possibly could so that it looked great, but nothing, nothing stood up. Uh, there were, you know, fans that didn't work, um, events that didn't vent to anywhere. There were, you know, all sorts of things that were uh, cosmetically, um, you know, why would you guess that something that has a vent over it doesn't actually go anywhere? (laughs) All the phone jacks with no phone line. That's right. Yeah. Um, uh, Back in the day of cable, uh, there were cable jacks with no cable attached. And these were things that the inspector didn't look at uh, because the house was supposedly done. Everything had been done. This is how it was advertised. And I was an idiot. So I believed when they said that everything was done that um, that I could trust it because it would. I thought it would be illegal to advertise those things falsely. And um, there are no protections around such advertisements in our city country, continent. Um, and um, so they got o- away with with a lot. And I, there were things that, that were inspected um, that you would expect should be inspected. Um, but things that there were, there were, there were just, there were so many things that were shocking when their true condition came to light, even if the condition was simply that they didn't exist. So, yeah, so I began to feel unsafe because I started to think about the people who had their hands all over my house, who had painted the house, who had um, put the finishes on, who had chosen the the plastic for the window frame that looked like wood, um, who had... Who had uh, decided not to cover all the drywall underneath deep underneath the kitchen counter that was very difficult to see from from any normal vantage point i began to imagine those people and why they would do what they did and it was all about money greed real estate greed is the monster in your horror play the house or the people that sold you the house they became inextricable to me um and and then other things that started to go wrong, and I guess we don't do spoilers here, but other things that really started to go wrong underneath the house really became connected with the previous owners. And uh, I, I had no love for that house almost from the very beginning. I didn't love the house to start with. I, I thought it was super cute and... I knew that it was a place that I could live in and that I could rent out when I went traveling because I was doing a lot of traveling at that time, a lot of touring, a lot of, um, I had a long distance relationship. And so for me, it was all about uh, something that would be as as practicable as possible, as simple to work with as possible and as comfortable as possible. I really liked the idea of having people over and all the condos I looked at were too tiny for a dining room table. This somehow had a a configuration that worked because it wasn't inside a building with a bunch of other condos. It was its own little house. Uh, The layout was such that I could actually put a small dining room table. And that was the biggest thing for me to be able to have people over and to entertain people in my home have dinner parties. I didn't have one. <laughs> it, was, it all started to fall apart before I even got a chance to um, 
have anybody in to warm my hearth. And, uh, <laughs> um, yeah, so, um, so those things, the things that I associated the house with at first were people that I would have over to it. And then all I could think about were the people who um, sold it to me, who inspected. They all kind of, there were some, maybe some uh, questions around why the inspection wasn't more um, invasive. <laughs> um, and uh, and the, the people who had owned it certainly became figures in my mind. I had to write about them. I had to. While I was going through the hell of it, I, the only thing that was comforting to me was the thought of writing a horror film about it ultimately and and turning these people into characters. That That is how I could stop myself from feeling victimized. That leads me to the next question, and that is that obviously it's a it's a time in your life that was very difficult and, and you still have the ramifications financially from that time. I just wonder, obviously you want to write what you know, but was it hard to share that at all? Hard to go back to that time that I'm sure you want to forget about. Yeah, it was, and it was hard to um, it was hard to do the show every night when I was doing it. And it, you know, we did a lot of shows, so it was it was very um, it, and it was also difficult because they say when you have PTSD, which anybody who's had like a serious house trauma can attest you wind up with a bit of PTSD. So you're, you're terrified by rodents or you are uh, disgusted by mold and you dream about mold or like whatever your situation is, right? Um, uh, I remember being told once that people with PTSD should write down their trauma and the exact order of things that happened and um, and do it again and again. And by doing so, um, they would desensitize themselves. But partly because there was so much and it went on for so long, I couldn't really um, I couldn't really do that in the writing. I just kind of had to get through it once before we started putting it up on its feet and doing shows. And then and then the fact is that I had to change a lot of details in the play to protect people so that I wouldn't get sued. And so a lot of things are slightly, changed and also people who I had to protect um, who were close to me who I needed to remove from the story for example um, so the story wasn't ever really there are no untruths in it but there are lots of missing truths and so I'm not doing that exercise I'm doing an artistic exercise and so yeah it's it's it is it's tough and um, <laughs> on show days I would lie in bed until I really had to get up and eat and start getting myself ready to go in. It was, anybody who does a solo show can tell you that it's very, very exhausting. Um, but this was even more exhausting than other solo shows have done because of that fact. And then afterwards, I would feel like such relief. And then you go back the next day. Yeah, it was, it was tough. We'll be right back. I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I, I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. You understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. I want to ask you about the actual crafting of the piece because it was so close to home and based on real experiences. How did you 
I, I imagine there'd be so many details. How did you craft it so that it became a sort of a easy to process um, piece for people to follow the story, but not get bogged down in all the details of it, as I'm sure there were yeah. hundreds of tangents you could have incorporated? I, I had a lot of help writing this show. I had two dramaturgs. I started with my boyfriend, who was with me at the time, who was not in the story, because uh, reasons of you know protecting his reality during my reality problems. Um, but also Sandra Belkovsky uh, is the dramaturg who sort of took me from the very initial draft uh, to the production draft. And Sandra Belkovsky was a dramaturg for me when I was in my 20s for my first solo shows um, called The Poxy Place. And uh, both Sandra and Blake Brooker, my partner, who took on different phases, because it wasn't easy for them either to sit with me while they went through all this stuff. Um, they took on different phases. Uh, they took on different phases of the development. Blake sort of helping me hoist it from my insides into the world, and Sandra helping me to refine it so that it would be concise enough and um, have flow enough for an audience to follow it. Uh, because I would get lost in details and I would go down rabbit holes and uh, and they both helped me, stopped me from doing that. Does your work usually involve yourself in that way? Or do you, so this is unique for you? This is very unique for me. My work is usually highly um, fictional, absurd, um, uh, magic realism, uh, uh, you know, almost like cartoon characters come to life on stage. Uh, this is definitely the grittiest, uh, most real I've ever gotten. And how how does it differ in the writing process for you when you're when you when you are mining your own life? Well, the great thing is that you've you've got a narrative. You don't have to worry about the beginning, middle, and the end. Um, those things were pretty clear to me. And I, I you know I suppose I did start with a point form outline, which I never do with my other work, but I could do it with this because <laughs> one existed. And uh, and then the question was how much to include of each phase, each section, how quickly to move through, um, you know, the period where the house started, how quickly to move through the period where the house started to fall apart, how long to spend on the rodent issue and the subsequent animal issues that became most horrifying. Uh, those those things were questions that I had, but I did have a map in my mind from the beginning. What was tricky was that I realized very soon in the writing process that I couldn't just go straight forward in time. There had to be a forward and backward, forward and backward, forward and backward, because um, I began to realize things uh, at, at, at points long after they had manifested in my house, my life, my my situation. So in the writing, I would describe a certain period of time, and then I might go back and get into the character of the real estate agent, for example, and then pick up and move forward again, and then move back into my family and what it was that predisposed me to such a calamity, um, and then go forward again. And um, I had to keep doing that right up until the end. And there was a lot of returning to the beginning, even at the very end of the play. 
how could this happen? How could I let this happen? How could those around me let this happen? Those professionals around me who were tasked with protecting me, um, how could this be? So that question kept coming up. You say in the play that you were a different person by the time you sold the house than you were prior to that. Are you still different? Like, how has that experience changed you, would you say? Yeah, I'm definitely a different person. Um, first of all, I, you know, I have a real estate allergy. (laughs) I'm, I'm, uh, I'm broke and, you know, continuing to pay for that house. And so my values have changed. If I, if I hung on to those values that I, you know, latched onto along with all those people around my age at that time, um, the, those, those desires to have real estate to, um, to build financially, to build security, um, I I have really um, uh, detached from those values. I I, I don't believe in security anymore. Uh, not in that way. Um, I believe more in friends and family being my home. I believe that you can have a little tiny altar with a little candle and your favorite, um, you know, animal sculpture, and that's that's your home. So I would I would say that, you know, it's it's not that I don't wish to have security financially. I I just don't place as much importance um, in that goal anymore. Does that work well with being an artist? Because artists so rarely have security and don't always measure their their um, success based on the same things as people who have, you know, real jobs. Yeah, it's very much in line with that. Um, I think that uh, I'm very much like like many artists who throw themselves into their work knowing that uh, especially if you're in theater or poetry writing or um, visual art, unless you're very, unless anyone is very lucky, um, you're pursuing, you're you're pursuing, you're always pursuing, and pursuing sometimes costs money. Sometimes you pursue even though you haven't won a grant or you haven't um, got enough to pursue. So so many artists uh, are very good with their money, but many go into debt during periods of time when they're creating and there's just no other way because our it's 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 not in our culture to support artists um be, beyond a, a very minimal level um and that's always been the way it's ever been so I know you have quite an extensive background in Buffon and I just wanted to know how much of that you incorporated into this show uh because this show is is very naturalistic in a way. I mean, there's a heightened performance for sure. I don't actually behave like myself. I'm a much softer person, in fact, in in person than I think I I play on stage as this character. Uh, this character is largely protecting herself, um, but it is still pretty naturalistic. And Buffon, Buffon to me involves a lot of performance sleight of hand, creating juxtapositions on stage. So, um, for example, smiling softly at the same time as saying something very sinister or aggressive. Uh, 
Perhaps there's a bit of that in crawl space, but really only as much as my personality would would carry that forth in daily life. Um, there are no there are no fancy tricks in this show. It really is about laying it down like it is. There there's some, I would say, a bit of poetic writing. There is um, there are a lot of narrative tricks in terms of the you know the back and forth thing that I was talking about. But um, but I would say that it's I'm not trying to attack the audience in my performance. And if this were Buffon, I would be. I would be wanting the audience to go away. Uh, thinking about things that I had said or done and then wondering about them and then having sort of explosions inside. This show really is about catharsis in the moment. It really is about letting people um, uh, uh, go through it with me and have the experience with me. Yes, I hope that they go away and talk about it and think about it, uh, but only in continuing that catharsis, not having a sudden revelation afterwards that they couldn't get to during the performance. I'm with the audience in this one. Something we ask all of our playwrights, do you have any tips for emerging writers that you have learned or anything that you feel um, up-and-coming writers should know? See as much as you can, read as much as you can, and then apply for things that will make you create deadlines. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> yeah, I, I, you know, there are no rules that I stick by. As I say, I did an outline for this play, but not for any of my other plays. Do you usually know the ending when you write a play? No. I always love to hear that people don't. <laughs> Some do. Yeah. And finally, I just want to ask you, when I listen to your play as the podcast, um, I, I have to say every time, and I've, I've heard you perform it, um, and I've read it, and I've listened to the podcast, I always fall in love with that little yellow house. I always kind of root for you and the house to stay together. Do you ever do you ever think, if only I could have found a way, or do you ever drive by it, or, or are you done with that house? Because you speak of it with, 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 there is some love in that telling of it at least some of it that that was early in the game <laughs> uh weirdly though it is visually design wise location wise uh, size wise a lovable little house uh the experience i had in there was so drastic and horrific by the end that i can only think of how I was made to feel how I couldn't sleep there, how I, uh, you know, um, the nightmares that, um, that, that, that were real life. I, that's, it's the experience. Home is not about a building. Home is about what you do inside it. Um, home is about how you feel when you're there. I felt good for maybe three days. And the rest uh, was, was history. And even after the problems were cleared up, and even after I, I fixed the house, uh, I wanted nothing more to do with it. I wanted nothing to do with it within within three weeks of living there, and I was there for two years. So, um, yeah, and I do go by it every now and then, and I get a really creepy feeling, and I I 
don't like to, I've gone to look at, you know, sort of how it's doing from the outside. Um, and I, I worry about the people in the house. And um, I mean, when I sold it, I sold it with full disclosure. But um, it's been sold a few times since then. And I don't know that everyone has sold with full disclosure. So I yeah, so that's what I feel. I feel disgust, worry, <laughs> resentment. So that's a big no. <laughs> <laughs> I guess so. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I should add that, like, for me, there was a happy ending. I was, you know, taken in by my beloved boyfriend in Calgary who said, just come here and stay for a while. And then I just stayed. And, you know, with our dog. And we have a very happy life there. I am so lucky. I consider myself, except for the little money problem I have and, you know, sort of a loss of a couple of years, which it didn't turn out to be a loss because I've written three plays about real estate since then. It's been an inspiration. So how lucky am I? I'm lucky. You found your dream home. I found my dream home. I don't own it. (laughs) I'm not getting financially involved with it (laughs) until I take care of my own. But um, I found my dream home. Yep. Thank you so much. We really enjoyed working on this piece. It's very enlightening. I hope everyone will listen to it. And I appreciate you taking the time to talk to us. Thank you very much for having me and for having it. That was Laura's interview with playwright and performer Karen Hines. To listen to Crawl Space, subscribe on Apple or Google Podcasts or the new CBC Listen app. And while you're there, please consider rating and reviewing us. You can let us know what you think of our podcast by emailing us at playme at cbc.ca. And don't forget to follow us on Instagram at playmepodcast or Twitter at expecttheatre. We'll be back next with Take the Milk Now by Jiv Parasram. But until then, be sure to check out our entire collection of plays turned audio dramas, available for free on the Play Me feed. Special thanks to our CBC producers, Fabiola Melendez-Carletti, Cecil Fernandez, and Tanya Springer. The executive producer of CBC Podcasts is Arif Narani. The senior director of audio innovation is Leslie Merklinger. Play Me is funded by the Canada Council for the Arts and the Ontario Arts Council. Play Me is produced by Expect Theatre in partnership with CBC Podcasts. For more information on our plays and artists, please visit playmepodcast.com. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.